Welcome back here to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Thank you for joining us uh, this week. This is for uh, week 24 of our reading plan, June 12th through June 18th. Uh, We are wrapping up the book of Acts, beginning the book of Romans. We're now entering a new, kind of a new territory part of the New Testament. We are going to finish up the history books, which are the Gospels and then Acts. And now we're going to go into the letters, the epistles of um, Paul, you know, John, James, uh, uh, Peter, so on, but especially the Pauline epistles right now. We're going to learn about, not simply in the New Testament, we've learned what Jesus did, but now, especially in the epistles, we learn why is it important and what is the significance of it. So this week we begin, we wrap up Acts, Acts chapter 27, 28, and then we read the first three chapters of Romans 1, 2, and 3, Romans 1, 2, and 3. So here, um, let's wrap up real quick at the beginning of this. Let's wrap up Acts. Um, Acts uh, 27, 28, real quick. And then we will begin into Romans. So remember Acts, we've talked about how uh, Jesus is still ruling and reigning. He's reigning from heaven now, right? And that's what we're reading here in the, uh, the book of Acts. And we see how Jesus promised that the gospel will go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that is the order that we see in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. That's the order we see it. Begins in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, uh, stays there in the city for a bit, spreads to Judea, it goes to Samaria, Acts chapter 8, and then eventually by Acts chapter 10, we now have it beginning to go to the ends of the earth, because and also in chapter 9, we have seen the Lord save the uh, Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as the Apostle Paul, who is going to be that great instrument to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what we've been reading here in the latter half of the book of Acts, is after Peter's initial preaching to Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, the gospel has been spreading. Jesus Christ has been conquering the hearts and the minds of men and women and children all over the place in different lands and continues to take a people for himself. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. And Paul has been going on these missionary journeys, you remember, he's been preaching the gospel about proclaiming claiming, heralding who Jesus is, the fact that he is the ruler of the kings on the earth, and he is the ruler of all things, and he's the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. But God crucif- God, God allowed him to die on the cross. The wicked men crucified him, but it was all part of God's plan so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins, and so that everyone who places their confidence in him and looks to him and sees who he is they will be saved and forgiven of their sins. And that is the message that Peter and Paul and all of the apostles in the early church were not proclaiming. But we saw, beginning in Acts chapter 21, uh, that, that things begin to take a turn. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and this is beginning a journey where eventually Paul will end up in Rome. And now in chapters 27... And 28 here, right, we see 26, Paul is uh, speaking before Agrippa, and he 
eventually says, you know, I appeal to Caesar because remember, Paul is a Roman citizen. So he has the right to appeal his case and uh, to uh, Caesar, uh, the, the Roman emperor. And so that's where he's going. He is sailing for Rome in chapter 27. He's traveling for Italy, uh, heading there. We see the the storm that Paul gets involved in and uh, the, the nature of it. We see he's shipwrecked, and he mentions that elsewhere. I think in 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks about his shipwrecked and, and all the sufferings that he, he went through. And then he stays on Malta, we see. He eventually arrives at Rome, however, through it all, through a crazy journey getting there. He arrives at Rome and is spreading the gospel there. And eventually we see that he's speaking to the Jews, right? He's talking to them. And some were told, some were convinced, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it's continuing that same theme you'll notice that Acts is wrestling with and actually that the book of Romans is going to wrestle with is why is it that most of the Jews reject a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish man who claimed to be the king of kings and who uh, they're upholding as the savior of the world? Why is it that the Jews reject him and a bunch of these Gentiles who have not had the Bible, who have not heard about the true religion, who didn't grow up with this. Why are they believing in him? But Jesus' own people didn't believe in him. And this is something that the New Testament consistently wrestles with. Remember, uh, John even says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The Jewish nation uh, was split between him, right? His disciples were all Jews, and and his first followers were Jews. Um, but they were not the majority of the nation. But however, there were Jewish followers, that, that, that minority of them. And, and then eventually we see, though, Jesus eventually is, the, the name of Christ is spread outside of the, the walls and the borders of Israel and outside the borders of synagogues outside of Israel to eventually where now you've got gradually and gradually and gradually more and more the proportion of people that believe in Jesus is decreasingly no longer Jewish, but is now increasingly more and more and more becoming more predominated by Gentiles. And this is something that um, was a big question. And it was a question that Romans is, is really at the heart of Romans um, as well. And so it's just something to keep in mind. But that's, that's, that's here even at the tail end of here of Acts chapter 28. So Paul here is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking it uh, to the ends of the earth. And even while he's bound, he, uh, he says, he'll describe himself later on in Ephesians, um, I am an ambassador in chains. And even the chains, remember he talks about in Philippians, I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. So he continues to preach and teach uh, without hindrance and uh, without, without being... Um, 
hindered from proclaiming that good news to the ends of the earth. Well, today, just one last thing I want to read here from from Acts is taken from Horatius Bonar. I'm actually holding this. This is a book we have in our library. Uh, you may not know that we have we have a really we've got a new library that we've created. Um, upstairs at the top of the elevator. We've got some great resources that were donated to our church um, by a godly man who, who wanted to bless our church. And just so you know, there are books and there are books. <laughs> there are good books and there are bad books. And the books that he had were very good books. And amongst them is one of the things I've been quoting uh, by Horatius Bonar. Uh, he was a Scottish minister in the 1800s, very gospel-focused preacher. Um, and he has this section, these, uh, these set of books called Light and Truth, Bible Thoughts and Themes. And uh, it's a beautiful little set, actually. It's a blue set. You would find these in the commentaries uh, section uh, on the shelves in the library. But I'm reading from it today, and it's taken from Acts chapter 27, verse uh, 23, where Paul says this. Let me read it here for us. Uh, What am I at? I don't think that's it. Let's see. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Verse 23, he says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Uh, He says here, God, whose I am and whom I serve. That's what uh, Broner's translation says. But this is a section called The Confession in the Midst of the Storm. And he writes this. This is Paul's acknowledgement of the true God in the midst of Gentile idolaters and amid the uproar of a Mediterranean tempest. It is like Jonah's in the ship of Tarshish. Its meaning is... I am God's property and God's servant. I belong to him and I serve him. I am not my own, but his in body and soul, in life and strength and faculties. I am God's. Solemn words, but the words of the few, not of the many. Yet they ought to be the words of all. Less than this, none of us ought to say. Till we come to this, we are all wrong. Our being is out of sorts. Our existence is unreal. Our souls are dark and wretched. Paul here speaks one decidedly. He is no waverer, no halter between two opinions. He has made up his mind. He has thoroughly decided. He speaks as one who has made his choice. Two, he speaks certainly. He interposes no if or perhaps, but speaks as one who knows his relationship to God. Of doubting he knows nothing, but only of certainty. Three, calmly. These are not the words of excitement or fanaticism. There is an unutterable calmness and simplicity about them. I am God's, and I serve him. What peace must have been filling his soul as he uttered them? For joyfully, they are the words of one exulting in the consciousness of this divine relationship, this sure and blessed connection between the living God and himself. His is the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Five, and lastly, it's earnestly. His is religion in earnest. With him all connected with God is a profound reality. It is this that makes him so much in earnest, so that even in his simplest words, the pent-up fervor breaks forth. Such is our model. Though we be not apostles, we are to take our stand here. Nothing less than this will do. Nothing short of this is religion. This is God's demand upon us. It is his right, his due, He expects this at our hands. This is our proper position. It is the manly and upright as well as the Christian one. Neither Christ nor conscience can be satisfied with any other, nor does even the world expect less. 
Indecision, oscillation, and half-heartedness will not do. Compromise will not do. Lukewarmness will not do. Formalism will not do. In everything relating to God, there must be reality, sincerity, completeness. The whole heart must be there. There must be no hollow religion. God will not have it, and our own hearts resent it as misery. Yes, it is misery. To be neither our own nor God's, neither Christ nor the world's, neither religious nor irreligious, this is misery. The heart aches with its own hollowness. It will not do. Oh, let your religion be real if you care to have religion at all. To be real, it must begin with reconciliation. Peace with God must be its foundation. We preach the reconciliation through the cross and blood, that if it be all yet to begin, it may begin begun now. Christ is our peace. Oh, enter into peace through him. Give yourselves to God. Give your affections to him. Give your soul and body, your all to him. Know him and speak of him as the God whose you are and whom you serve. When thus reconciled, we learn to exalt like Paul in our heavenly relationship and happy service. What different beings we become, not our own, but God's. How this isolates us from the crowd, individualizes, ennobles us, not our own, but God's. Then all we are and do and speak becomes divine. We can do no common, no trifling thing. All we engage in is elevated, glorified, sanctified. Oh, let us learn this high nobility of being, this heavenly elevation of life and of all that belongs to life, repeating to ourselves, the God whose I am and whom I serve. We press forward in our course, nerved for duty and for trial, repeating to others, the God whose I am and whom I serve. We give a sufficient answer to all the words or arts of temptation by which men seek to make us compromise our character and become unfaithful to our calling and service. Well, that's it from Horatius Bonar there. And that is a great way to think about the Apostle Paul, I think, overall. God, whose I am and who I serve. And when we think about the Apostle Paul, right, all throughout the book of Acts, and then in all of his epistles, right, we read his letters. Here is a man who knows who he belongs to. Here's a man who knows who owns him. He'll, he'll remind the Corinthians, you were bought with a price. And Paul knows he was bought with a price. He'll describe himself as a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't do that in order to denigrate himself. He does that to highlight the, the love and the depth of the, the devotion and the price that was paid by his Savior to purchase him from slavery to sin. And so if we are looking at the Apostle Paul, and he tells us to follow him as an example and as, a, as, a, as to imitate him, um, then when we look at it, because uh, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And when we look at the apostle Paul, we see a man who knows whom he belongs to. The question is, do we know that? Are we convinced in our hearts? And do we know in our minds who we belong to? 
Do we know that we don't belong to ourselves, but we with body and soul and life and in death belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? I, I don't know if you noticed, uh, he opens up some of the language there, Horatius Bonar does, with that opening question from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an old question and answer uh, teaching method, the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question is, what is your only hope in life and in death? And the first answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we think about that, that is everything, isn't it? That is everything to us. Do we know whom we serve? Are we devoted to him? Are we earnest about it? Are we committed in it? Because as he points out, it's misery to be between two people, to be either irreligious. We either need to be completely irreligious or completely devoted to his purposes. And let's do the let's do the latter. Let's do the latter. But that's a helpful thing to think about with the Apostle Paul, because now as we turn to his first letter that is in in order of our Bibles, it's not the first letter he wrote, but it's the first letter that comes that is is in order. And that's an interesting thing. So we turn our Bibles now to the book of Romans, the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans. And this week we're reading Romans chapters one, two, and three. And so a few key facts as you open your Bibles and turn the pages over now to the letter uh, to the Romans. Um, for a couple of key facts that I found here, first of all, I mean, of course, the writer is Paul, and he's probably writing from Greece, probably writing from Corinth. So we've we talked about in Acts, Paul's ministry in Corinth, um, and Paul's he, he spends time in Greece. He's probably writing from Corinth uh, to the church in Rome. Paul is wanting, eventually, as he says, to go to Spain to preach the gospel there. And there is uncertainty as to whether he eventually made it there. Uh, I think some some do believe he did. Uh, we're not sure, but that was his desire, to continue spreading the gospel farther and farther and farther in the Roman Empire. He wrote it probably in about the mid to late 50s. So uh, whenever and he dies in the 60s. Um, the Apostle Paul does. It's very important to note that he writes this letter. This isn't the first one. It's the first one in our Bibles, but it's not the first letter he wrote. He had written Galatians. He had written the Thessalonians letters and the Corinthian letters already. And um, uh, so so he's he's here. He's he's writing uh, to these to these uh, churches. Um, and I, I, I don't know, uh, maybe the, the Thessalonians and the Corinthians letters, I'm not sure about the both of them. I'd have to go do some more research, but at least he's written other stuff, right, beforehand, uh, before writing this. So what this is, is pointing out to us, and I think this was in one of the New Testament introductions, is that this is representing some of the mature thinking of Paul. This isn't like, um, uh, this, is, this is something that Paul's had time to think about, what the message that he preaches is all about, and he's going to let us know. He's writing to these Christians in Rome, these congregations, these churches in the city of Rome. And uh, one New Testament introduction book says the purpose of this book is to promote Jewish-Gentile unity in the church by setting forth Paul's gospel. And that is true. At the very beginning, you'll notice that Paul says, uh, in ver- these are really kind of the key verses. Uh, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So Paul here is going to talk about how the unity reality, the, the, the reality of Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ is related uh, to the gospel. He's going to promote this. And you'll see this relationship go here throughout the book of talk about Jews and Gentiles, but how, um, and, and talk about that relationship. But something that um, we don't necessarily think about so much today, we have other issues today, but um, it's helpful for us to try to get our minds back into that situation um, where these where these people were at. Because you remember, um, you know, if you think about it, think about how hard it would be if you're a Jew and you've got all of these. For you being a believer in God is not simply believing the true facts, but there's a whole culture because there was only one nation that believed in God, right? It was the Israelites at that time in the Old Testament. So you've not simply got things that are necessary to the faith, but you've got a whole cultural understanding. You've got all the Old Testament law. Um, you yourself may have never ate pork, and yet whenever you're showing up at the uh, the local church in Rome, uh, so all of a sudden Demetrius is showing up with a with a ham on it on it on the platter and bringing it to the church potluck. And you could imagine that would really it would make you uncomfortable. You'd be disgusted, and you're like, "What in the world's going on? Why did Demetrius have to bring that here?" Um, you know, why can't we just eat good old uh, food like we always do uh, that, that's clean and not pork? And why can't we just do these other things? And, and there would be, you know, we, you know, they're not observing all the law, the, the Old Testament stuff. And it would, it would create a lot of friction. But Paul here is going to promote the unity of Jew and Gentile by proclaiming to them the reality of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. That's what he's going to do. Now, this letter of Romans is has been important, uh, obviously. It's been important. It was important to the lives of, of uh, St. Augustine, the early church father. Um, it was important, of course, to Martin Luther, um, who God used this work, um, particularly verse uh, 16, 17 there, where the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, through faith. And, and Luther says this was really the verse that kind of it was a breakthrough whenever he understood this verse, whenever he was able to study and hammer away. Remember, Luther was a, a basically was a, was a, was a university professor. He, was a, he taught Bible. He was a doctor of Bible. He was a professor, an academic, and he had been hammering away, trying to understand and study and look at these verses to what does Paul mean? And then all of a sudden, Whenever he realized the righteousness of God is not that which he requires of us or his wrath, it is that which he freely gives us in Jesus Christ. Whenever he realized that and, and was able to understand it, he says, all of a sudden, that was, such an, that was such a breakthrough for him, an understanding of that verse. It, it really turned the key and everything else in the Bible began to take on a different color. Everything else started to make sense and come together in ways that, that he didn't see before. And really, that is so important for us because we are Protestants. We are, in a sense, the grandchildren of Luther. Um, who who really be, God used that as a and he he in many ways is the spiritual father of of uh, the of all Protestants all those who who understand that justification our acceptance with God is by grace alone because of Christ alone and the only way that we receive that is by receiving it freely through faith as a free gift um, we look to Luther as our spiritual father or grandfather in the faith there. 
Um, and, and, and really, um, he was just, he would say himself, I'm just pulling from what Paul said. And Paul is simply teaching us what the Lord Jesus uh, taught him as well. So, um, yeah, so very important for Luther. And one of the things I want to do as well that I will post as well is I want to read to you in a separate thing. Uh, Luther has a preface that he wrote to the book of Romans. Um, and so I want to read that because it's really cool. It's really, it's really helpful. Um, but I'll do that in a separate one because it's a little long. And so maybe that'll be helpful for people later. Um, so now outline, how do we understand Romans? Well, there's really a, a few really big sections that you can get your mind around. So after the introduction and these key verses here, then in uh, verses 16 and 17, we've really got three big, three really big, um, um, sections here. We've got, um, Romans one eighteen all the way through uh, chapter 8, where Paul here is talking about um, the righteousness of God in justification. Paul's talking about the righteousness of God in justification and all of its consequences, all of its implications for our lives. So, in in the first chapter Romans 118 through the 3 chapter 3 verse 20 he's going to emphasize our need for justification right the fact that we cannot justify ourselves we cannot make ourselves acceptable and meet God's holy standard by ourselves he's then going to talk about how God's righteousness in beginning in 321 is manifested in the work of Jesus Christ his redemption and that we receive it through faith. And this is shown through, this is the way it always has been. He says uh, through, uh, we see it in the example of Abraham. And he also highlights some of the, the implications further understanding how this acceptance, this, this reality is, is given to us and, and the implications of it. He says, justification leads to peace and joy and assurance um, in chapter five, and he highlights how Jesus is like a new Adam. Jesus, the first Adam, brought condemnation into our lives. The second Adam brings salvation. But justification also doesn't mean just because we're accepted by God um, and and justified by faith alone because of Christ alone, that doesn't mean that we can just go live however we want to uh, and indulge in sin. Rather, justification now means as well, one of the implications that flow from it again is we are free from bondage to sin. We are free from the law, as he says in Romans chapter 7. And what he means by that is we are free from the law in the sense that we are free from trying to owe, to earn salvation by obeying the law. Now, we do love the law, on the other hand, because we want to honor God with our lives, but we're not trying to use the law as a standard to buy salvation anymore, right? That's very key. We're not trying to use the law and good works in order to merit, to buy, to pay God off so that we can get eternal life. Rather, because of what God's done for us, freely giving it to us in Jesus Christ, declaring us acceptable in his sight so that now we can enter heaven with him. Now, the law is no longer a way to earn salvation, but a way to show gratitude and thankfulness for the salvation that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And then chapter 8, another implication of justification there being that we are free we are assured of eternal life. We have the Spirit of God living in us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
And really, um, that is really what's going on here. I've, uh, by the way, I need to mention this. I've been helped with this outline by Charles Hodge, who was a commentator. But um, So really, the first part, really chapters one through eight, really, if you want to think about it bigly, is uh, God's work in justification and all of its implications. Uh, then chapters nine through 11, the question is, so if this is so great, why didn't the Jews believe this? And Paul is going to wrestle with issues related to um, God's sovereignty, uh, grace, um, all of these different things. And we're going to talk about the calling of the Gentiles, the unbelief of the Jews, and God's wisdom and sovereignty in salvation and all of those things. And then in chapters 12 through 16, we're going to see Paul now say, since in light of all of these things, in light of what God has done, therefore, you are to be living sacrifices. And so, this, these are practical exhortations. These are the implications for the gospel in our everyday lives and all sorts of aspects of our lives. Okay, so that's what's going on there. So let's look here at Romans. Let's look here at Romans now. And um, again, I want to pull out here from, uh, let's see here. I've got some more from uh, Horatius Bonar as we think about Romans chapter 1 talking about the great um, reality of, of man's sin, of, of man's uh, uh, condemnation uh, under the law. And so here, let's look here and, and talk something about that um, uh, here as we, as we continue looking at these things. So first of all, I want to talk about man's forgetfulness, because eventually in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And in Psalm 106, verse 13, it says, they soon forgot his works. This is again from Horatius Bonar. It's called man's forgetfulness, and it's a meditation upon this reality of our forgetfulness and of our sin as Paul's talking to us. And he's kind of like a, a lawyer, a prosecutor, showing and convicting us before God's, uh, before the, the judgment seat of God, showing our guilt in his sight. Horatius Bonar says this, God has well remembered man, remembers him every day. God might easily forget man, He is so insignificant, worthless, unlovable, but he does not. He has never done so. This world, evil as it is, has been truly what one has called it, his well-beloved world, his well-remembered creation. Each of us, however poor, however sinful, is a fragment of that world, that race which he has never forgotten. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Each moment's mercies are tokens of the divine mindfulness. He ever retains us in his knowledge and memory. God desires to be remembered, my man. He has taken unspeakable pains to keep himself before his creatures so as to make forgetfulness on their part the greatest of all impossibilities. In everything that God has set before our eyes or ears, he says, Remember me. In every star, every flower, every mountain, every stream, in every joy, every comfort, every blessing of daily life, God says, Remember me. How affecting this desire of God to be remembered by man. How, yet, how has man responded to it? We shall see. The world's history and Israel's history, not less, have shown how God's wish to be kept in affectionate remembrance by the creatures he has made has been met. They gave me hatred for my love. They did not like to retain him in their knowledge. It is not, however, merely a deity or divine being that is to be remembered. It is the one living and true God. Every departure from this is idolatry and dishonor. 
This true God wishes to be remembered. One reverently, he is great and glorious, to be had in reverence of all creaturehood. Reverence and godly fear are his due. Two, confidently, his character is such that he deserves to be trusted. Trustful, childlike remembrance is what he expects of us. Joyfully, not by constraint or through terror or hope of profit, but with the full and happy heart. For lovingly, we love him because he first loved us. Loving remembrance he would fain have, nothing less will do. Five, steadfastly, not by fits and starts, at certain devotional seasons, but always. Perpetual remembrance is what God asks, everlasting remembrance. This God, whose name is Jehovah, is worthy to be remembered. He is so infinitely glorious and good and great and lovable. The wonder is how one so great should ever for a moment be forgotten. That he should forget us, so insignificant would not be surprising, but that we should forget him, so great and mighty, is inconceivably marvelous. We may suppose a creature, an atom of the dust, sitting alone and admiring this great being and saying, He may not think of me or notice me, who am such a grain of sand, but I cannot help continually thinking of him, looking up to him, praising him, loving him, whether he cares for me or not, whether I am overlooked or not, if he will only allow me thus to praise and love. But can we suppose the opposite? The worm of the earth never thinking of this great God at all? and yet this God continually thinking of him? Yet man forgets God. He hears of him and then forgets him. He sees his works and then forgets him. He acknowledges deliverances and then forgets him. Thus it is that man deals with God. For his fellow men man's memory serves him well, but towards God it is utterly treacherous. Israel is frequently charged with such things as these. One, they forgot his words. All that he had spoken in grace or righteousness, as warning or as love, they forgot. His words were to them as idle tales. Thus we treat our God. Two, they forgot his works. Miracle on miracle of the most stupendous kind did he for Israel, in Egypt and in the desert, as if never wearied with blessing them. Yet the work was no sooner done than it was out of mind. They sang his praise and then forgot his works. Three, they forgot himself. Yes, himself, their God, their Redeemer, their rock, their strength. They thrust him out of their thoughts and memories. He and they were to live apart, to have no intercourse with each other. They were to live in his world and forget himself, to enjoy his gifts but not himself, to breathe his air, bask in his sunshine, drink his rivers, climb his mountains, sail over his wide sea in storm or calm, and forget himself. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Forgetfulness of God is God's charge against his creatures. He does not exaggerate their guilt or bring out into view the gross and hideous crimes of the race. He simply says, you have forgotten me. That is enough. My people have forgotten me. It is they who forget God that are turned into hell. This may seem to be some small, this may seem to some a small sin, a negative evil, a sin of omission, but God places it in the foreground of iniquity. Consider this ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces when none can deliver. Psalm 50, verse 52. God lays great stress upon remembering him and his works. Often did he use that word to Israel, 
Remember. Remember the way that the Lord led thee. Remember the commandments of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember thy Creator. In the New Testament, the words of the Lord himself must occur to everyone. This do in remembrance of me. Amid the response of the church, we will remember thy love more than wine. Forget not, O man, the God that made thee. He has given thee no cause to forget him. He ever keeps thee in mind. Keep him in mind. Amid all thy forgetfulness, let him not be forgotten. Amid all thy remembrances, let him be ever uppermost. His remembrance will be joy and peace, fragrance and refreshment and strength. Retain him in thy knowledge, root him in thy memory, fix him in thy heart forever. That is great stuff, I think, right there. It's a good, helpful reminder. Our great sin of forgetfulness of God. Just not thinking about him. Think about how every sin really could be traced back to that, couldn't it? They forgot God. They were not grateful to him. They did not honor him as God. The first sin really happened, didn't it? Because Adam and Eve put the thought of God out of their minds. And and so often in our lives too, whether it be at home or work or at church, we put God out of our minds. We forget him and we have forgotten who he is. And yet we have the audacity to breathe his air, walk on his earth, drink his water, do all of these things and yet not acknowledge him. But that's what sin is. That's who we are apart from God coming and the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and bringing us to Jesus Christ in saving grace. So that is thinking about the sin that is that is in us and the sin that remains uh, that, that, that we have to deal with. And this is one of the, we, so we cannot justify ourselves, can we? We cannot earn salvation. We cannot, um, we cannot uh, buy it by our works because our works are all tainted. None of us remembers God. None of us uh, seeks him at all. So here we go. Now I want to switch over here real quick. And I want to read something from another guy named a guy that I haven't read from before. And his name is Robert Hawker. And this is another book in the library. It's a big commentary set called the poor man's new Testament commentary. This is the uh, volume two of the new Testament series acts to Ephesians and Robert Hawker. Uh, let me look on the back here for the biography for you. He lived from 1753 to 1827. Um, he became, I guess, a minister in the Church of England, and uh, he's got a full set, a New Testament commentary set, um, and Old Testament as well, I mean, the whole Bible, and it's very helpful. It's got some good thoughts, things for us to reflect on, to think about, um, about what it has to say to us about uh, who we are and, uh, and, our, and our problem uh, with, with sin um, and, and all, that we, all that we have to deal with uh, here, here as... Um, as sinners and the reason why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here, let's, let's listen here. And when we think here about what the Romans chapter one is, is highlighting to us, he talks here about Romans chapter one, where Paul is highlighting to us. Um, he says, you know, our sin nature, all that we are, all that we do. And, and Hawker says this, this will give you a little taste of who he is. He says this, I must beg the reader to spare me from entering into any further account than what is here given of the awful state of human nature by the fall. 
While I admire the chastity of language and the sacred writers, upon every occasion of this sort, when called upon to sketch the horrid features of man's portrait, since the apostasy of Adam, to which all his posterity are equally drawn, I behold enough in the picture to be humbled to the dust before God, and desire to gather from the whole, without enlarging on the several parts of the presentation, yet fuller views of the infinite preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whose vast redemption alone his church is brought up from such an awful state of depravity. Here, reader, if we look at what the apostle hath drawn, and stand convinced under divine teaching, that what one of Adam's fallen sinful race hath done, all are equally capable of, and but for the restraints of grace would fall into. Thus, behold, humbling as the view is, yet blessedly profitable will it become. And, oh, that the Lord may in this manner sanctify the apostles' account here given to the souls of his people. So he's highlighting there, isn't he, the depth of our sin and of uh, our our need and our inability uh, before God to do anything. And he's highlighting to us the fact that we are all capable of 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 these things, of horrible things of what we have done. Uh, eventually here he goes and continues on here. We're going to talk about Romans chapter uh, 2 and 3. So we go through the sin. Paul says there, there is uh, no, um, there is no, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Partiality with God. God judges Jew and Gentile the same. Um, all are guilty and all are condemned uh, before him. And then, but then in Romans chapter 3, we talk here about eventually the justification that is given to us in Jesus Christ, the justification that we have and that we are we are given freely by God. And I want to read some more here uh, from Robert Hawker from Romans uh, chapter three, where he begins highlighting here. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. He writes this in these verses here and and about the verses following that a little bit too. Here Paul arrives at the great object which all along he had been preparing to bring in, and in the very mention of which his whole soul seems to be on fire. He had glanced at it before, but here he dwells on it more particularly, and what he marks as the distinguishing feature of it is that it is wholly unconnected with any other and with every other principle. But now, saith he, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Yea, saith Paul, it is witnessed by the law and the prophets, both joyfully give in their testimony to the complete, full, and all-justifying righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. They gladly minister to proclaim their own nothingness and Christ's all-sufficiency in a way of justification. Reader, I beseech you, pause over this precious testimony, which God the Holy Ghost hath here given by his servant Paul to the righteousness of God our Savior. Look at the law in all its bearings. By the law, saith Paul, is the knowledge of sin. Yes, the law teacheth of sin, shows what sin is, but cannot show a righteousness which may save from it. This the gospel only proclaims, and the blessedness of it, and the fullness of it, and the completeness of it, both the law and the prophets witness to with joy. But what I beg the reader also not to overlook in this precious statement of the righteousness of God our Savior is that it is a righteousness so universally suited to the Lord's people in every department, whether babes in Christ 
or old saints of God, that it is unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. Reader, calculate if you can the immense blessedness of what is here said. First, of the righteousness itself, which is holy of God, not of man's providing, but of God's appointing, not of man's merit, but of God's free grace. No predisposing cause, but the everlasting love of God in Christ, having anything to do in the matter. Yea, faith itself, by which a child of God is made to possess it and enjoy it, have nothing of the merit by way of recommendation. The Lord, who is the sole author and giver of this righteousness, is the sole author and giver of faith also to receive, believe, and enjoy it. So that faith, as an act of ours, is but the effect and not the cause, the hand to receive and not to promote the vast mercy. The highly favored soul who is made a rich partaker of the blessing, to him it is given to feel his want of righteousness in himself, to behold Christ's righteousness as every way suited to himself and his wants, to accept on his bended knees the proffered mercy, and to receive it to the divine glory and of his own happiness. Secondly, this righteousness is said to be unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. No difference in the thing itself, neither in the application of it. For the Lord whose it is gives it to all with an equal hand, and loves all with an equal love, and justifies all with an equal freeness of grace. For it is not what they are in themselves, but what they are in Christ, which makes them the objects of the divine favor. It is blessed, yea, very blessed, to have a large hand of faith to receive the larger portions of the grace of belief, to enjoy the Lord's blessings of every kind with a greater fullness. But our enjoyment is one thing, and the Lord's righteousness which justifies another. He that hath little faith, and is in Christ, is as completely justified by Christ as he that hath the largest portions of faith to apprehend with greater delight his mercies. By him, saith the apostle, that is, by Christ, all that believe, whether strong believers or weak ones, whether babes in Christ or fathers in the strength of Christ, are justified from all things, and the reason is given, for the righteousness which, justifi which justifies is alike justifying unto all and upon all. It is unto them and upon them, not within them or from them. And therefore, being wholly out of themselves and nothing within, no inherent righteousness and holiness in the creature, which some men talk of but none know, there can be no difference in the receiver or in the act of justification by the giver. For as the apostle adds in the following verses, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and therefore the justification of all cannot but be alike the free gift of God, and not the smallest difference in man. Being justified, saith the apostle, freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the close of this paragraph, the apostle dwells very blessedly on the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, and on the grace of God and the wonderful ordination of it. And from the union of both, he shows how Jehovah, in his threefold character of persons, may, and indeed doth, justify the believer in Jesus, while preserving his own glory, in the full perfection of all the rights of his justice. Whom God, saith he, hath set forth a propitiation through faith in his blood. The reader will perceive that I take no notice in this passage of those words, to be, which are in italics and which have no business there, for Christ was not then to be set forth, for this had been done from everlasting. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting. 
We do not meet with the, I'm going to skip down a little bit. <clears throat> we do not meet with this word propitiation, but three times in all the Bible, once in this place and twice in the first epistle of John. Christ indeed is both the propitiation and the propitiatory. He is the propitiation or sacrifice, the propitiatory or mercy seat and altar on which that, which that sacrifice was offered. And he is the high priest or sacrificer to make the offering. The Jews were accustomed on this account to call the mercy seat Illusterion, for here, in allusion to all the great events connected with the person of Christ and his offices and character, the Lord promised to come and meet his people. And in the person of Christ only can this meeting be, either in time or in eternity. Well might his name be called Wonderful. For while all the divine attributes meet in his person and shine in one full constellation, all our sins meet on him, so it is rendered in the margin of our old Bibles, as centering upon Christ, not in Christ, and the Lord Jesus washing them all away by his blood, so that Christ, in the fullest sense of the word, is the propitiation and the only propitiation for sin, having by that one offering of himself once offered, perfected forever them that are sanctified. So he's highlighting there again the, the greatness of our justification in Jesus Christ, the fact that we are now accepted not because of what we've done, but because of Christ, no inherent righteousness, nothing we could do or feel or want, nothing in your mind with regards to your salvation. This is hard to do. You must block out everything, everything that belongs under the sun. Everything you do, everything you could try to do, all of your feelings, all of your best intentions, all of your Bible reading, all of your loving other people, none of that. Nothing underneath the sun in this world, on this side of the grave, will ever be able to justify you. You have to look into the heavens where Jesus Christ is risen, and he offers himself to each and every one of us. And when we look to him, our righteousness is in heaven. We are safe and we are secure. A perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we are acceptable in God's sight now. We no longer have to fear, but we can have holy confidence in his sight. Well, I hope some of this has been helpful. Um, please do check out the preface to the epistle uh, of St. Paul to the Romans from Luther. Um, if you if you want to, I, I'm going to read it just for fun and for me, if nothing else. But um, I think you might find it helpful and useful. And then uh, keep reading. We're going to keep going into Romans. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's one of the best books ever. So thanks so much for listening. Take care. God bless.